Ben, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Before we go on to the, the wonderful work you do with the PFA at the moment, let's have a chat about your football career. Uh, born in Liverpool, when did you start kicking the ball about on the streets of Liverpool? Uh, take me back um, when I was about eight, I think it was. School years, playing with the boys, playing with my mates after school. Um, so yeah, I think I was eight and I started playing properly for Liverpool Feds under 10s. Uh, that was the first team I started there. Did you have to play with boys' teams when you first started that? When you very first started kicking the ball? Yeah, well, the school team was boys. There was no, there was no girls' team at school. Um, so yeah, I played with. I think I got picked. I can't remember what year it was, but yeah, I played with the boys. I was the only girl, um, but I started started every game, so that was good. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was my PE teacher in that school when I got to like it must have been year six, so near on eleven, and she said, look. You know, I think you need to come and play for this girls' team, and then I started there. But majority of it, I used to play with the lads. I had five or six lad mates. Was it difficult for you to, to to play football with the lads, or was it just a natural thing because they were your pals anyway? No, no, it was natural for me at the time. I think it probably stood me in really good stead. Um, and because no other girls played, I didn't obviously see it as difficult. I didn't see me yeah. being the only one. I didn't really think of it like that. Apart from when you got older and you look back and you think. Oh, there was no girls to play with, but I think at the time, just because boys were the ones who played football, I just slotted in quite nicely. Um, and a good friend of mine, she she ended up joining and playing in goal as well, just because I wanted to play. She'd come and play along, and she ended up going on to play in Liverpool ladies in goal as well. So, yeah, we just played with boys, and I, I enjoyed it. It was, you know, three three aside in the in the local cul-de-sac around the corner, and um. Yeah, we used to, I'm trying to think, one of the footballers, an ex-Liverpool player, used to, to live in the corner and he'd come out and yeah. kick ball with us every now and again. So it was the dream, really. But yeah, no, it was, uh, it was fine at the time. But now looking back, yeah, it's a, it, it was tough. Did you ever think you'd make a career out of it, Fair? Or was it just a bit of fun at the time? At that time, it was definitely just a bit of fun. Definitely when I was playing with boys, it was all fun. Just go home, get your footy kit on and get straight back out and... Um, I think it was only at the age of, I think, 13 when I got scouted for England that I thought, OK, I'm actually quite good at this. But even then, I probably didn't see it as a career because there wasn't careers for yeah. for many. It was still semi-pro. And um, I've come from a family where, like, my dad's a doctor and my sister's a, a doctor in pharmacy. So sport wasn't really a career you did. Um, my brother was a footballer, but again, on the male side. Um so, yeah, it was for me, it didn't look like a career until, yeah, I was probably 15, 16. And then I decided I went over to Everton then. So, yeah. I was going to say, how did the move to Everton come about? Is that because you wanted to push your career on? Is that because it was at the forefront of your mind by then? Again, it wasn't me so much pushing things. It was just how the way my career kind of worked out. I was scouted for England at 13. Um, and then I wanted to play under 15s, under 17s, and then under 19s at England. And it was when Mo Marley was the manager there. Um, at England and I played for Liverpool schoolgirls so a lot of the girls I was playing with were Everton players and obviously I was playing for Liverpool and every week he'd play, come play for Everton, come play for Everton and I'd be like, no, 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 I'm staying here and I think it was only when Mo kind of, you know, like pulled me into a room and we sat down and she was like, look, I think this is the way your career is going I think you could do really well in football and again, Everton were top two in the country at the time, pushing Arsenal and Charlton and 
for me to be offered that at the age of 16 and speaking to family it was just a no-brainer that you know it was for the best step for me in my career and actually to be able to make a career out of it it was like no you, you are good at this and you will play I think it was the first question I had was I'm only 16 I'm actually going to play like there's a lot of internationals on this team you've got Farrah Williams Rachel Uni you know you've got you've got a lot of brilliant players am I actually going to play and I did so yeah. you know yeah. I think that was the, the big thing for me was coming in at 16 and actually playing amongst them players was massive and you were the the, the young player of the year in 2008 won the FA Cup in 2010 so having backed yourself it worked out well didn't it yeah it did it did and we you know we had a great team at the time we really did we were playing Champions League football I was learning a lot as a young player really really quickly um and I got my first call up to the seniors when I was, you know, 19 as well. So being around those kind of players at such a young age really, really did stand me in good stead. Um, so it was definitely 100 million percent the right move at the time. And I, lo I loved it. And obviously that's why I stayed at the club for so long. How tough physically and mentally were, were, were the long term injuries that you had for and they kept you out for a bit? Yeah, I think. That unfortunately, even though, as you say, won those type of things. And uh, I think what will stand out about my career is the injuries, unfortunately, um, and probably the length of time out that I was out for. So the first one came at a really difficult time because I had just won Young Player of the Year. And I was, in terms of, you know, you put it, I was flying at the time. I felt top of my game. I was getting senior calls up and... Yeah, it came at a really bad point when the World Cup was coming. So that that first year for me, I probably didn't see it as too much of a mental kind of thing. It was kind of just like, all right, well, I'm injured. I think I was on the phone to Mo the next morning um, after the injury happened. I'd literally been stretched off. I couldn't move. I was lying on the sofa and I says to her, Look, I'll be on a plane tomorrow because we were going to Chile for a pre-camp. I'll be there. Don't worry, I'll be fine. And so I, even then it was like the realisation of what had actually happened wasn't there. I was I was on the plane in a week's time. I was I was back. I was fine. So for me, it was so much like it's OK. I had the target. I had the World Cup in October and I was going to get back and I was going to do it. And I did. Um, so I think at that point, it's the first injury I'd ever had. So I didn't see it as such as a mental thing. It was kind of just like, well, one part of my body's injured, but the rest of me isn't. So I've got a lot of work to do for for October and getting back to, you know, to captain the girls in Chile was was unbelievable. Played against some amazing players in that tournament. And so from then on, it was fine. But I think when it then occurred again and I had to have an operation and it put me out for two years, that that really took its toll mentally on me, I think. And it was it was quite a tough couple of years being a Finch farm. Yeah. Watching watching players progress and I wasn't going anywhere. I was just standing still and I was on a bike and I wasn't really doing what I wanted to be doing was really hard. Like I probably should have been playing in the seniors at that point. I should have been, you know, I was in a lot of 30 squads for European championships and rather than getting in the final 21 and even the Olympics, you know, I was in the final draft for that. And then I had to have my operation two weeks before the Olympics. So, you know, it was quite, quite, quite tough, definitely quite tough. And, you know, um, was there a support mechanism in place then? Yes, obviously, in terms obviously, of, obviously even, yeah. in, even in the short space of time since you left ever, women's football has moved on massively. But what was it like for you then? Were, were, you, were you well looked after? I think because I was an England player, we were central contracted. I had um, support through the PFA, um, through counselling. So I did, you know, I did speak to counsellors quite regularly, even at that young age. I think I was only 24, but I was getting quite a lot of counsel at the time because 
you know, I was, I was on my own a lot. It was quite an isolating feeling. Mm. Um, but there wasn't any kind of psychology within the club. It was more through, through country. So I was quite in a fortunate position, really, that I was an England player. As you say, it started off as a, as a, you were a young kid kicking the ball about playing through your side in the streets and all of a sudden you win an FA Cups with Everton, you're playing for England. Did you see yourself as a, a, a something of a role model for the generation that will come behind you first? I don't think so at the time, if I'm honest. I don't think at the time I thought, you know, people will look up to me. I think I was just doing what I loved. I really was just enjoying it. I was, you know, enjoying playing with the bunch of girls we had were unbelievable. I made some real good friends for life there. And um, so I think for me, you know, and I'd say this to a lot of girls playing, it's it's about that enjoyment factor. The minute you start kind of looking too far into things, you know, I, I want to be this, I want to be a role model, I want to be, you can kind of lose the fact that you're a footballer and you're actually enjoying yourself and you're just doing what you love. Um, it was more towards the end of my career that I saw the effects that what you know what I could have and what telling my story could could really do um, for players coming through. Um, so one about obviously enjoying it, but two about you know how you bounce back from setbacks and injury and you know that resilience to to keep coming back and keep wanting to play. I think after my, my operation, you know, the surgeon said you might never play football ever again. So for me, it was it was that bounce back ability and. It took a lot of realisation for me that I wasn't going to play for England again, I think. Because mm-hmm. um, that had been my life since I was 13. Yeah. So to get to 24, 25 and go, OK, you might never get that back. But that was tough. So, you know, that's why I signed for Notts County. And I really wanted that push professionally. And it did. It helped me. I, you know, I played pro football, but I did never get back to playing for England. And I think it was that, that realisation. So actually now, what can I do differently? Like, instead of being playing for England, then I think that's when I started to look at myself as a role model um, when I was like 26, 27 and, you know, doing a lot more in the community, a lot of more ambassadorial work and supporting the young players coming through was really important to me. And that leads us perfectly into my next question about your role with the Professional Footballers Association. Just tell us a bit about that, Ben. Uh, I'm really excited by it, to be honest. It's um, So um, the first uh, women's football EDI uh, executive, so I'll be looking after the uh, working alongside the equalities team. Um, there's currently five of us in the team, so I'll be working on the men's side and the women's side for that department. Um, and then my main focus will be working um, with uh, Marie Boucher at the women's football side of things. So it's a women's football department got set up in 2020, uh, and it's solely on looking at the development of women's football um, and supporting the female football players. So, so I'm mainly Southern-based. I look after the Southern clubs, but I will be doing a lot of travelling to, to all the other clubs as well. Just, um, yeah, offering that voice of support, that guidance, making sure the players are aware of what the PFA is. You know, the union is there to support the professional footballers um, and to give them that support as the game gets more coverage. Um, you know, player welfare is massive so it's mm. it's about them being aware of the access and the support they can access because for me as a player that's that's the reason I wanted to do it because of the support the PFA gave to me over my career I wanted to be able to give that back a little bit and as you say be be that role model. The mental health side of things with women's football as it progresses as it starts to get bigger and continues to get bigger and bigger it, it must be a big thing because all of a sudden women footballers are being recognised all of a sudden, you know, Georgia Stanway, for example, gets sent off in the Manchester derby and it's everywhere. It's all over social mm-hmm. media. And that is what the game is about now, isn't it? But 
it's only just started to happen for for women in football, hasn't it? So I suppose the mental health side of it is is so important. Yeah, it's key. I think you know, there's just so much to deal with. I think for me, it was the mental health side of things for me was was injuries, and mm. that was you know being away from family, being away from home. That was a lot of what I struggled with, but. You know, the female footballers of this day and age now have got a lot more to deal with. As you say, there's pressures on the online, as you say, the online presence and the online abuse. But it's also the pressures that come with that. So as a female, like you've got body image and things like that that go with that people don't even realise. It's, you know, are people, are the players going to look after the nutrition side of things as well? Or is it purely about what people are going to see them like? You know, you don't, you don't want to be getting abused for how you look as well as how you play. So... Yeah, the, the scrutiny on players is massive at the moment. So I think being aware of where you can go for support as a player is huge. And as you say, them support networks become your best friend. They, they become something you rely on um, day in, day out, because the last thing we want is for people to, you know, to feel bogged under and not be able to talk. I think that's the most important thing. Um, so, yeah, that, that side of things is huge. And still an ongoing issue is, is online and offline as well. Racial abuse in football. We're celebrating Black History Month in October, Fern. Where do you think we're at as a sport with regards to equality? There still seems to be a lot of work to do, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think we're, we're taking strides in the fact that we're doing it so unified, you know, throughout the PFA, throughout Kick It Out, throughout the Premier League, everybody's sending the same message that, you know, we will not tolerate racism in football. I think the players won't stand for it anymore. And I think that's, you know, that's a long step, a long time coming in that everybody is so unified. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think there's, there's still a lot of talk about taking the knee. There's still a lot of talk about you know, how far have we actually come? What has actually changed? And the online abuse is still very, very prevalent. And also abuse within stadiums, you know, has risen. So mm -hmm. um, we're not blinded by the fact that it's still occurring, it's still going on, but there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes with the social media companies to, you know, to get them to take more account of, of what's going on because there's work being done, but I think the general consensus is we're not there yet and, and we're nowhere near where we want to be. So... Um, the awareness is there and I think the message is that you know while people are talking about taking an A question it's summer for it's summer against it I think the players are standing with it majority because it is keeping the conversation going mm -hmm. it is you know every time it happens you you know a lot more people are applauding it in stadiums now and a lot of people and fans are a lot more aware and a lot more educated around um you know racial abuse and you know the languages that cannot be tolerated especially within stadiums and I think what we're trying to really drill, drill into players at the moment is how they report the abuse that they do receive and that it's vital that they do report it and we don't want anything to just go unnoticed so um, it's it's working with the correct authorities in report on the abuse to, to nip it in the bud as soon as possible. That is, that is a problem that is an issue within an issue isn't it unreported abuse the message has got to be to every footballer at every level whether you're playing six aside as a six-year-old or playing in the Premier League, it, it, it mustn't go unreported. It's got to be reported, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Otherwise, nothing's going to change because if you're not aware of a problem, then there's no problem to change. So I think someone asked me the other day, well, have you ever had it and, you know, you've let it slide? And I think, yeah. And I think, you know, you shouldn't, I shouldn't have. And it's years, probably years ago, I can think of certain events in my mind of when I've been training and, 
you know, someone's made noises at me in the crowd or whatever, and you just shrug it off as a player, you just ignore it. But it's, it's, I think it's so good now to see it's got to the point where players are like, no, we are not standing for it anymore because why should we? Why should we at the end of the day? So, you know, I think that's how far we've come is that now players are wanting to voice their concerns and are wanting to voice the abuse that is happening to them. Um, like you, as you say, you saw Georgia Stanway get a lot of abuse straight away. And yes, it wasn't racial, but she she straight away said, look, reported it and she's hit back and said, look, we don't need this play. Players don't need this abuse. They've got a hard enough task playing um, and dealing with the stress as a playing as it is than having to deal with the abuse that comes along with it. So um, I think the reporting side of things is massive. And then if there is sanctions, as there is penalties that are occurring, it then encourages the players to report because they can see things being done. There's nothing worse than mm. when you think you're doing something and nothing's happening. So... Yeah. You say there that when you were a player, you, you, you suffered racial abuse from the stands and from the terraces, you just shrugged it off. And you make it sound quite matter of fact, but it can't be easy to just shrug it off. No, I think that was in a training session, to be honest. That, that wasn't even within a stadium. That was just in a normal training session. And it's one, of, it's one of the things when it happens, it's kind of like it's disbelief because you think, yeah. was that actually aimed at me? And then you look around and there's only two black players on the team. So, yes, it's aimed at us. Um, and you say it's quite matter of fact. And for years, I think, as, you know, as black players or as not even just footballers in society in general, you have to develop a thick skin. And, and yeah, I think probably did shrug it off. And then it's like, well, why? Why, why is no one getting held account for, for their actions and what they're saying? So... If I was to tell my younger self that exact same thing, it would have been go straight to whoever's in, you know, your safeguarding officer in the stand or at training with you, report them, tell them what's happened. And obviously they're there on site. They can get, you know, sanctioned there there and then. And yeah, I think it's 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 changing. Society's definitely changing and players now are using their voice, um, which I think is really good. An unthinkable byproduct of, of, of that type of thing, Fern, is that, as I said earlier, you, you were a role model, you continue to be a, a role model, but it's unthinkable to think that we could lose talented young footballers, talented young black footballers, men and women, because they don't want to put up with the type of abuse that you get on social media. That would be, that would be, that would be awful, wouldn't it? Yeah, and that would be disastrous, really, wouldn't yeah. it? I think especially as you say for that diversity across for me personally across the women's super league um we 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 have the far and few between um black players in the league and you you wouldn't want that to stop the next generation of players coming through if they were to go oh, do you know what x is getting abused left right and center i don't want that for me i don't want that and not just about football it's after football as well so mm-hmm. you know look how great alex scott's doing in the media but she has had to deal with a hell of a lot of abuse and that could have prevented so many people from wanting to go into roles like that when it shouldn't because we need that diversity in these roles post playing as much as we do for the players as well and i think that's really important so Again, as I said before, there's a lot of work to do. We're not there yet, but we need to be so that we don't end up losing future black, female, young, aspiring athletes. And the same as the role models in these, you know, executive roles after playing as well. And especially now that young girls can start playing football, you didn't consider football as a career until you came to Everton, but a young girl now who wants to play football can can consider it a career. There's a a pathway there now, isn't there? and, and, you know, you see, you see, 
home kits with the with the women's names on the back and the pathways there, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's great. It's really good to see. And I speak a lot about my niece because she's a really like young aspiring footballer and she sends me messages of her in the garden doing her skills and I'm gonna be like you when I grow up. And it's really nice, it's really touching yeah, to see and actually exactly and it, it really is what it's all about and you just think you know what we're doing is worth it and what we're doing is working like they can see um you know and I think for me it's about seeing players as such as myself so ex-black female international players and they're there to be visible so that these young girls can say actually yeah I, I want to do that when I'm older and you know I can actually I could earn something I could make a career mm-hmm. out of this so you know long may continue there's a lot of work to be done in you know the the structuring and things um, but actually the fact that there's a professional women's football league in England, I mean, we didn't think we'd ever see it. So, you know, long may it continue. We can get more fans in stadiums. We can, you know, with the Sky deal, a lot more people are watching. The viewing figures have gone up. It's great to see. So, yeah, hopefully the next 10 years is very exciting for women's football. I'm sure the next 10 years will be super exciting for women's football. But do you ever think to yourself, I could have done with being born 10 years later when you see the money in the game, the coverage in the game? It was just started as you were playing for Everton, but now it's obviously gone massive. Do you think? Do you ever, do you ever think to yourself, hmm, could have done with a piece of that? <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't want to play uh, top flight football on Sky? Do you know? What I mean, that that's the dream for any footballer. So I'd be lying if I said, God, I would, I would, I wish I wasn't still playing now, and I didn't have to retire early. But again, you know, I look at the career I have had, and I, I cast myself as being really lucky that I've managed to carve something out of it post playing as well. Mm. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the girls at Everton didn't even get to experience playing pro at all. So I cast myself as quite fortunate. You know, some of them had to, you know, Jody, Jody Hanley, she had to retire early. You know, these type of players that got there, got the game to where it was and then didn't quite get to to even see what I got to see. So, you know, we all have our stages. And I think for me, I'm now at the point where I can... Um, you know, look at being in, involved in the media because there's a lot more media involved in things. So, you know, I'm doing a bit with Sky, I've done a bit with BBC. So actually it's presenting those opportunities to me post-playing that I probably wouldn't have post-playing 10 years ago. So, you know, it, it all comes around and swings and swings roundabouts. Around if, enough, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> if I, you know, if my niece can experience playing top flight professional football, then I think, you know, we've done our job. You're in an excellent position. You're clearly enjoying it. You're clearly excelling, clearly excelling at it as well. What would, when you look back, say over over in twelve months' time, what would what would be success for you in this in your current role? Um, I think that's a really good question. Want to get want to get asked quite a lot. I think for me, it's just being that that voice for the players that I can you know really bring a network of players together over the next year or so, next twelve months and have the confidence to go into these clubs to know that they can access access to PFA, access me personally, you know, have that that contact with them, that network, I think is the main thing for me. So, you know, I'm looking at getting into clubs ASAP. And um, so over the next year it's building those um networks of them. And then yeah, I think it's just looking into to the work that is being done in and around the the equality side. So, you know, we're looking at um, the women's contracts we're looking at how going forward we can support players through you know retirement through potential maternity looking at things like that as you know as a, a mum myself I think that's really important for me so 
I think a successful year in WSL, successful year of viewing figures, fans and stadiums, everything on the increase and on the rise. There's there's a lot of things that need to be done, um, but I don't think they'll be done over the course of <laughs> the next 12 months. I think we've got what got years to go. So yeah, for just to bed myself into, into the role and um, hope that we can make the players aware of the PFA as much as possible and they, they lean on us as much as they need be. Is there enough hours in the day for you? No. <laughs> no, no, there, there definitely isn't. But, you know, I think in a year's time, if I can look back and say I've had one player yeah. with respect to education, with respect to injury support, with respect to, you know, whether they're looking into transitioning, um, if one player turns around the good, you know, what really helped me with that, then I think that's a win for me within the next 12 months and then we can build upon that. Absolutely brilliant. It's clearly a role that you're enjoying, Fern. Uh, and thanks for finding 20 minutes or so to speak to us. No problem. Thank you for having me.